Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Title for the message this morning, Children of the Promise. Children of the Promise. If you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to make a note to bring one next week. We use those a lot around here. However, you can also grab one in front of you. There should be one in the pew rack. And if you are not familiar with the Word of God, it is page 945 in the pew Bible. If you do not have a Bible, you can take that one with you. That's our gift to you. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. This is God's Word. But... It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall be your offspring named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time, next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This is God's word. When I was in college, I took an intro class in the Old Testament, and the professor was fond of saying the following phrase, how odd of God to choose the Jews. There's some truth in that. As we read earlier, the Jews were not chosen because they were a mighty people. In fact, you might recall that they were in slavery in Egypt when God calls them out to begin the conquest of taking the land that he had promised to them. It wasn't because they were of moral superiority. It wasn't because they were of military superiority. It's quite interesting, isn't it, that they were called to go into a land and to conquer giants, the descendants of Anak, the Anakim, the, the, the giants of the ancient world, and they themselves had just come out of 400 years of slavery. I mean, you don't really have a militia when you're a slave. You, you don't have a lot of time for training your military when you're enslaved by another nation. Uh, they came out of there with relatively nothing except for the gold and silver and precious things that had been plundered from the Egyptians on their way out. Uh, they were not a people that were particularly wise or educated Multiple generations of slaves is all that they were. And so it is this group of people that God chooses and sets apart and elects in order to fulfill all of his promises that were made to Abraham. I mean, the very fact that there was a people shows that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Because Abraham, as you remember, was a man who was not able to have any children with his wife, Sarai, is how you would pronounce that, or Sarah, and then later Sarah, Sarah. But by God's miracle, he allowed her to be able to conceive. And so all of those people that were led out of Israel were really the, or led out of, of Egypt were the fulfillment 
of God's promise to make him a great nation. And so when Paul gets into Romans chapter 9, this section, he's carrying on his argument that the very purposes and plans and promises of God are not going to fail just because the Jewish people who had the covenant and they had the adoption and they had the law and the worship and they had the Messiah turned their backs on him and rejected him. He is saying, don't fear, don't think that God's plans and promises have failed because the people have failed. He's going to develop this argument all the way through the chapter where he's going to say, despite your failure, God is faithful. And lest we sit back with some degree of smug contentment that that applies to the Jews and not us, let me remind you today that you fail quite often and I fail quite often. And his pattern of faithfulness to those who fail remains intact. And the more humble we are about it, the more we acknowledge and realize that and give glory to God for that because we see ourselves in light of perpetual failure. Can I encourage you this morning before I even get into the main thrust of the message that if you are in your own mind defined by perpetual failure, a perpetual lack of ability to live up to even your own standards with respect to what God has called you to be, I wish you to be encouraged today. If you leave from this place further burdened by your sin, if you leave this place more guilty than when you came in, more ashamed than when you came in, then you have not heard clearly the message that's coming through this text. And you have not truly embraced what this cup and bread represent. So may you be lifted up today through the testimony of this chapter. And in it, I want you to see two things, two simple points. Spiritual children and sovereign choices. That's our outline for today. Spiritual children, verses 6 through 8, and sovereign choices, verses 9 through 13. Let's look at the first one. Spiritual children. Paul carries on from earlier where he says that the Jews have been given everything, every advantage, and it breaks his heart that his own people are not believing and embracing that Messiah. However, instead of being utterly and completely discouraged by it, he wants them to know that the plan hasn't failed. There doesn't need to be a plan B. God hasn't jettisoned this and then going to find another people to fulfill it through. No, he says it's going to be fulfilled perfectly and completely. And so he begins by saying that the word of God has not failed. What's the word of God? The word of God was the promise that through this people, the Messiah would come and one day they would all believe. That he would preserve them and bring them through. It has not failed. Why? For, notice, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Stop there for a moment. That's the basis for the argument that this will not fail. Here's his answer. His answer is that all Israel is not Israel. What does that mean? He says that all who are born to Abraham are not the ones chosen by God to be children of the promise. 
to be spiritual children. Just because you come from Abraham doesn't mean you automatically are a child of God in the spiritual sense. He is saying that from the nation of Israel, I am going to call out some. I am going to choose some. You see, all throughout the Bible, you see God revealing that it is from the many that he calls the some. It is from the masses that he calls the the chosen. And this is the same with Israel. They're not allowed to say that because my passport says Israel, that I am somehow in a special category. As a matter of fact, beloved, the only thing that binds us together with any other human being is that we are adopted as spiritual children. Do you realize that you have more in common with a Christian Arab than you do with an Orthodox Jew? You have more in common with a Christian Arab than you do with an Orthodox Jew. The the only thing that really binds us together is not that we both have the same Bible or at least the same Old Testament. What binds us together is the fact that we have the same Savior. And they are just as much in need of a Savior as anybody else. And so he says that not all who simply belong to the line of Abraham are his offspring, the real offspring, the spiritual offspring, the chosen ones themselves are the remnant from Abraham. They are the ones that will be named. You see, this is where all of the comfort comes from. This is where all of the hope comes from. He has not allowed his promise to run aground. I love the word failed earlier there in the passage. The word of God has not failed. It's a nautical term a term that the sailors would use, a term that was used to describe a ship that had gone up on the rocks or or, or described a boat that had to be cut loose because the storm would drive it up against the shore and smash it. God is saying that, that my promises haven't failed. They haven't run aground. They haven't sunk. They're going to be successful in the end. And here's why that's so important for you and I today. We are not children of Abraham, are we? In the literal, physical, racial, ethnic sense. We are not Jews. And so were it not for God's great kindness in allowing us to be brought into that covenant, we would have no hope. How odd of God to choose the Jews and how gracious of God to include the Gentiles. It is only because of his kindness that we are even part of this covenant family. And as we're going to see later on in chapters 10 and 11, Paul says that that is the case and therefore we ought not to be arrogant and proud and act like we figured this out. We understand who Jesus is. We see the Messiah for who he really is. And these other people didn't see him and therefore we're better off. We're special. We're smarter. No. We're just received by God as the gracious recipients of that covenant promise and included with those whom he will preserve until the end. So look at verse 8 as it continues. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. What does that mean? Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different right now. I'm going to take you back and I'm going to give you a history lesson. Now, now you can't leave because I'm already looking around. You can't walk out and say, oh, it's not what I came for. I think you're going to find this very interesting. 
But I am going to ask you just to focus in for a little bit on this because if you don't understand the history, you're not going to understand what Paul is saying here. So let's go all the way back and talk about the patriarchs. It all begins with Abraham, doesn't it? Abraham was one of three sons that we know of, of a pagan man named Terah. And he came from this man, and he and his two brothers are mentioned in the book of Genesis. The brother that we know most about is his brother Haran. Comes from an, a land that was actually called Haran up there as well, the Ur of Chaldees. And he and his brother are known because his brother was the one who had a son named Lot. And you might remember that Abraham and Lot had some interesting exchanges. In fact, at one point, Abraham has to rescue Lot after he becomes imprisoned during his time flirting around with the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot, as you know, at one point after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, finds himself alone with his two daughters, and they get him drunk, and they sleep with him, and as a result, you have these two nations that are born from their children. And so that is how we get the Moabites and the Ammonites. Do you remember hearing about them in your reading of the Old Testament? The Moabites and the Ammonites? Well, they come from Lot, who came from Haran, who came from the same father as Abraham. So that's the one group that we know about just from the lineages. Well, then you've got Abraham. Let's talk about him for a moment. From Abraham, you have Isaac. Now, you'll remember that Isaac was not the firstborn son of Abraham. Who was the firstborn son of Abraham? Ishmael. So God comes to Abraham, and he makes a promise, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, and, and Abraham, who's like 86, decides this is taking too long, and so Sarai, or Sarai, who will later become Sarah, says to him, you know what? God obviously is not really going to fulfill this promise through me, so why don't you go ahead and produce a child with Hagar, my servant? And so Abraham, Abram at that time, takes her advice, and he sleeps with her, and she produces from him a child, and they name him Ishmael. And Ishmael is not the son of the promise. In fact, God visits them again, and he says, no. This one, Ishmael, is not the son of the promise. And as soon as they have Ishmael, Sarah gets very jealous of Hagar and abuses her and treats her terribly and, and sends her out off into the wilderness, basically to die. And God visits her, and he says to her, I will protect you. I will make you into a great nation as well. Ishmael will not be wiped from the face of the earth. Go back to your mistress. Go back to your owner. And she does, and she goes back, and she lives there for the next 13 years. And Ishmael grows up. And then God visits them again, and he says, Abraham, remember that promise I made to you that I was going to give you a child? Well, I'm going to fulfill that. And it's not going to be through Hagar. It's going to be through Sarai. And Sarai overhear overhears this, and she falls down laughing. That's not exactly a model of faith, is it? But you'd be laughing, too, if you were 90 and someone says you're going to have a child. But she laughs, and yet a year later, what happens? She gives birth to a son. She gives birth to Isaac. And so what you have here is this amazing fulfillment of God's promise. And God says, that's the son of the promise. That's the one that I guaranteed. 
Now at this point in time, Ishmael's 13, 14 years old, and as they are celebrating the birth of Isaac, he's off on the side, possibly making fun of the whole thing, laughing, maybe mocking. Sarah, once again, says, that's it. You need to get rid of this woman. Get rid of Hagar. Get rid of Ishmael. And Abraham, again, goes along with what she says, drives the child and his mother away. But God again reminds them that I will make of you a great nation as well. But you will be constantly at war with your brother. And so we know from the rest of the book of Genesis that Ishmael also has many sons, 12 to be exact. And he settles in all of the region. If you have your Bible at the back, your maps at the back of your Bible, he settles in all of that region just to the east of Egypt, all the way up towards Assyria. And so uh, it is from him that, that all of these Arab nations come. And in fact, it is through Ishmael that even the modern-day Muslim religion comes from. In fact, they trace back their lineage all the way, not to Isaac, but to Ishmael. And in the religion of Islam, they say he is the true son of the promise, not Isaac. And they follow him. And so all the Arab nations and all the Muslim nations, they all come out of Ishmael. So you've got Abraham... You've got his brother Haran. From Haran, you've got the Moabites and the Ammonites. From Ishmael, you now have all these Arab nations and all the Muslim nations. Well, let's continue. From Abraham to Isaac, you also had some others that were descended because after Sarah dies, Abraham remarries. He remarries a woman named Ketra, and they have six more sons together. Remember, Abraham doesn't have Isaac till he's a hundred. Then he gets married again. He gets married again in his 30s, but not like his 30s, like in his 130s. And he he marries, you know, Ketra, who is still obviously of childbearing age. These weren't miraculous births. And so six more sons are born to him. And we read from the book of Genesis, and I think it's Genesis 25, they all populate the nations as well. And then if that's not enough, the scriptures also say that Abraham had concubines, and from the concubines, he also had more sons. So so when you think about Abraham as being this patriarch, it's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Yes, that is true. But it's not just Abraham and Isaac. It's Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, six other sons from Ketra, and then a whole bunch of others from concubines. Gives you a little slightly different perspective on Abraham, right? He was 175 when he died. I mean, Ishmael and Isaac, they were in their 70s and 80s when dad died. Imagine what it is like for him to watch these boys grow up. By this point, he would have seen multiple generations. By the time Abraham dies, he sees the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises of God to become this great nation, not only of Israel, but of all of the nations in the region. It came from him. We need to go a step further. Abraham, Isaac, but then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and we're going to talk about them in a moment. Obviously, from Jacob, you have the the Jews, you have the Israelites. But what about from Esau? Esau is the one who, from his generations after him, produced the Edomites. Remember hearing about them, the Edomites? So now, from this one patriarch, Abraham, from his line, you've got the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, all the Arab nations, almost all the ites that you come across in the Old Testament, they all came from him. But here's the thing. 
of all those nations, of all of those thousands of people, of all of those multiple generations, multiple wives, multiple families, multiple offspring, only one was of the promise. And what that means is that at every point along the way, the sovereign God of the universe was ordaining that one particular offspring would be the one that bore the promise of one day bringing the Messiah. And so what we need to understand here when we talk about spiritual children, it is that we are in that line. From Abraham who received the promise to Isaac who received the promise to Jacob all the way through until you get to the Messiah who then came that those who put their faith in him would be adopted as sons and made joint heirs of the kingdom. And so it is from the masses that God has always had his chosen spiritual children. And that brings us to our second point, sovereign choices. Look at what it says in verse 9 and following. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Well, it's really impossible for us to move much further through this passage without addressing the most often quoted verse in that section. And it's a quote from Malachi. God says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Now, before we explain everything that's going on here in verses 9 through 13, let's just deal with that first, because I know that's what many of you are wondering about. You're like, come on, get on with it. You've got to explain to me what does it mean that God hated somebody before they were even born. Well, let me explain it then. When it says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, let's begin by understanding what the two words mean. Number one is loved. Loved means loved. It's the word agape love, okay? It's that love of choice. It's not a love, the phileo love, the love of friendship. It's not eros, the love of sexual desire. It's agape. God showed agape love, choosing, selecting love upon Jacob. Chose to love him. The other word, the word there translated bad or evil, I'm sorry, um, uh, hated, is, is a word that doesn't contain the same kind of emotion as our word hated. When, when he talks about hating, it's a word that is most often used in the rest of the scriptures as a rejecting. It's essentially the opposite of agape love. Agape love is love of choice. Hatred here is the consequences of not choosing, the consequences of rejecting. God has accepted one and rejected the other. Just like God accepted the sacrifices of Abel, but rejected the sacrifices of Cain, God has here accepted Jacob and rejected Esau. Now, the next question is going to be, is he being specific about Jacob and Esau, or is this representative of their offspring and their nations? And almost every 
scholar would agree that the context here is that of nations. Don't interpret this as God determining that he is going to selectively choose to love this one individual and selectively choose to hate this other individual. Instead, to really understand the context of what Paul is actually saying here, and remember he's quoting from Malachi 1, is that God has chosen to set his love and his election upon this nation that will come from Jacob and not upon the nation that will come from Esau. He has not chosen the Edomites. He has chosen the Israelites. He has chosen to love them and he has chosen to reject the others. And the only way that we understand that he has rejected the others is because by choosing Jacob, he has selected which line will receive the promise. They both can't receive promised Messiah. Only one can, and so he has chosen Jacob and not Esau. Now let's back up and understand that in the context of the rest of the section. Notice what he says. He goes back and he, he reminds him of the story in Genesis 18 of what happened when God returned. And he says that by this time next year, you will have a son. That's in Genesis 18. He's reminding us that when God came back, he said, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael as much as you thought it was going to be him. It's going to be through another son, a boy named Isaac that I will bring to you through a miraculous conception and birth. And then verse 10, he says, Again, to understand the context more clearly, not only that, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. It's the same story. He says, look, though they had not yet been born and done nothing good or bad. Let's just stop there for a moment here. The word good and bad. Let's describe what that means. The word good is the, is the word that means intrinsically good. Agathos, intrinsically holy and good, something of upright moral character. They had done nothing that was good in the womb. They had done no morally upright, righteous, holy deeds. And they had also done nothing evil. They, they had done nothing that is sinful. So, so the whole issue here is not that they were chosen based on their works, based on their character, based on their morality. It is not that he looked forward to see what they would do and chose them for that. In fact, it says when they were in the womb, they had done nothing. And yet he chose. Why? The answer is that he has a purpose. There is always a purpose in election. Look what he says. In order that. That's our purpose clause. Underline that if you want in your Bible. In order that. God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of his call. His call. The word called, it's the same as to be named back when it talks about the offspring being named in verse 7. This call is the same call of chapter 8, verse 30. It's the call of election, the call of choosing. You're going to see it down in chapter 9, verse 24 and 25 and 26. The true offspring are the called offspring. And so he says here, in order that my purpose of election would be fulfilled, he is going to call them apart from works. You might say, how does that apply for us? The answer is that he called you apart from works as well, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. He literally called you apart from works. If you believe the gospel today, it is not because of anything you did. It's not because you were holy enough. And likewise, if you believe the gospel, it is clear evidence that you couldn't do anything evil enough to forfeit your opportunity to believe. 
If you believe today, it's because in his grace and his kindness, God has called you. And he has allowed you to hear. He's allowed you to believe. He's allowed you to repent and respond. And that's it. That's the very essence of the gospel. That's what we preach here every single week. And it's not just a new idea that came up in the Reformation. It's an idea that goes all the way back to the very beginning. It demonstrated even in the very patriarchs that Paul is referring to here that resulted in the revelation that he said his people were so blessed with. It is not on any works, on the basis of any works, but only grace. And so he quotes another passage here at the end, verse 12. He says, she was told the older will serve the younger. That comes from Genesis 25, 23. He says that, remember, from the very beginning, the older one is going to serve the younger one. Rebecca was told this. It wasn't normal. It wasn't natural. It wasn't culturally acceptable. But God breaks through what is culturally acceptable and normal to say that his plan and his promise will prevail even if it means mixing up the birth order in terms of the blessing. And therefore, it is written, citing Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. One has been chosen, the other is not. So these children of the promise, number one, they're spiritual children. It's not about your upbringing or your racial identity. It's a spiritual situation. And then number two, sovereign choices. In every generation, right up until today and this moment, it is God who for his own purposes chooses apart from any works. What's the application? Let me give you three. Number one, this is proof that his word will stand. His word will stand. God has made a promise. There is nothing that will in any way shipwreck or derail the fulfillment of that promise. It's always been the case. It always will be. Number two, his children will respond. His children will respond. The great promise here is is that if you belong to him and he calls, that if he has set his love upon you, you will respond in faith and you will believe. And then number three, his purpose will be accomplished. There is a purpose in every life. We're going to see this in more detail next week. But I can tell you just in general that God in his sovereign grace has purposed something for every single life. And that purpose will be accomplished through the mercy that is poured out or through the wrath that is rightly poured out. Every purpose will be accomplished. Every child will respond. Every word will stand. And in that, we take great comfort and hope. There's a hymn that I wanted to close by reading today. And we don't really sing it very often. Not sure if we've ever sung it here. But it's hymn number 54, and you can turn and look at this if you'd like, or I can just read it to you. But it really captures this idea beautifully. And as we prepare to take communion, I hope that it guides your thinking. Hymn number 54, My Lord, I did not choose you. It goes like this, My Lord, I did not choose you for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. 
You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old, you have ordained me that I should live in you. Unless your grace had called me and taught my opening mind, the world would have enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. Father, as we prepare our hearts now to receive these communion elements, I pray that you will remind us of this great truth. Sons and daughters of the promise. All of us unworthy. All of us wretched sinners deserving of eternal judgment, but only because of your grace and your mercy. Only because of your electing love. Only because of your choice are we able to gather here today and to celebrate the glorious redemption that we have in you. The expiation of our sin, as we read earlier. The full payment. The debt being paid. Oh, Father, I pray that today would be a day where we celebrate that together. Lord, as the children begin to file back in and to join us, I pray that we as parents would be careful to explain to them the true meaning of what we are celebrating today. That we are sinners in need of grace. I pray today would be the day when some of us as parents, maybe for the first time, have to explain to our own children that we too are sinners in need of God's grace every day. And maybe for the first time, repent and ask our children's forgiveness for the times where we sin against them. And may that not be a time of shame, but rather a great time of rejoicing because in that confession, we know there is forgiveness and cleansing. That, that there is, as the old hymn says, power in the blood. And not just the liquid that was drained from your body, but the very death that you died, a redeeming, rescuing, debt-paying, life-giving, grace-filled power. Make it ever-present in our lives today. Thank you for it. I pray that we would receive it with great joy.